1922, just four years after the end of World War I, a small Jewish boy was born on the corner of West 98th Street and West End Avenue in Manhattan, New York City. The boy, who dreamed of writing the great American novel, would go on to put such a mark on pop culture that he would touch the lives of millions of strangers all over the globe. That boy was Stanley Martin Lieber, better known as Stan Lee. Stanley was born to Jewish-Romanian immigrants Jack and Celia Lieber on December 28, 1922. The father, Jack, worked as a tailor, while the mother, Celia, took care of the home. That is, until Jack lost his job during the Depression, which left him unemployed for most of Stanley's youth. And that's where the problem starts. You see, because of Jack's scarce work, the Lieber family was quite poor. Not only that, but Jack was a difficult father, demanding strict rules for his children. That controlling nature often clashed with Celia's more motherly instincts. The result was constant bickering. In an atmosphere that must have been harsh, Stanley took solace in the written word, reading pulp stories from the likes of Sir Arthur Conan Doyle and Edgar Rice Burroughs. These stories, along with actors like Errol Flynn, instilled in Stanley a sense of adventure a belief that he could rise above his humble beginnings and become something more. But that didn't happen right away. In fact, much of his early life is rather uninteresting. Throughout his teens, Stanley took many part-time jobs such as delivering sandwiches and ushering at a local theater. He did enter a writing contest for the New York Herald Tribune, but failed to receive much recognition. Various small-time writing gigs came and went until finally he graduated high school in 1939. But because of his family's financial crisis, Stanley was forced to skip college in order to provide. He would later regret missing out on his college experience. At this point, Stanley is 17 and without a job. That is, until his uncle reached out with an idea. Another relative, Martin Goodman, owned a publishing company that might just have an opening. Excited, Stanley walked into the firm's office and interviewed with its editor, Joe Simon. In the end, Stanley accepted the position. The job? Be the office gopher. The hope? One day become a writer. The name of that company was Timely Publications. It would later be changed to Atlas Comics, and then again to a much more familiar name. Marvel Comics. When Stanley arrived at Timely, he wasn't writing stories or even pitching ideas. No, he was fetching coffee and refilling inkwells. Even so, the ever-confident man asked for a promotion within his first week, stating, quote, I know everything. While his proclamation didn't seem to have immediate results, he was soon asked to write some text filler. You see, at the time, many comic books were printed with two pages of text content in order to get cheaper shipping rates. These pieces of filler were regarded as nothing more than a money-saving loophole, but Stanley accepted the assignment with enthusiasm. His finished work, titled Captain America Foils the Traitor's Revenge, would end up being his writing debut with the company. Not only that, but it would also mark the first professional use of his pseudonym, Stan Lee. The origin of the pen name is somewhat vague, but Stan does remember using it in high school. In any case, the name would go on to become his de facto alias, though he did use a few others, such as Neil Natz, S.T. Anley, and Stan Martin. You might be asking, why did he use a pen name at all? And that's a good question. During the 1930s and 40s, comics were seen as a medium in which professionals didn't work. With dreams of writing the great American novel, Stan wanted to separate the embarrassing nature of comics with the profound works of literature he planned to write in the future. Needless to say, the future never panned out, as Stanley Lieber officially changed his name to Stanley in the 70s. Stan's first full comic script was published in Captain America No. 5 and ran for eight issues. Even though he thought little of comic writing, he was bold enough to emblazon his name on the front page of each comic. That's strange, because in those days, even the artists went uncredited. It seems that even though he didn't want to tarnish his name for his future career, he still wanted credit for his work. By 1941, 
Comic book legends Joe Simon and Jack Kirby were in their heyday publishing Captain America comics. The book, one of the industry's most popular, was earning big bucks for Timely. So much so, that Simon and Kirby were able to strike a deal with the publisher Martin Goodman for a share of the profits. And while that arrangement worked well for a while, the duo eventually discovered that Goodman was undercutting them. Disgruntled, the pair started freelance work for competitor DC Comics. When Goodman found out, he angrily fired them both. But one man's loss is another man's opportunity. You see, Simon and Kirby were Timely's editor and art director respectively, and their departure left a huge gap in Timely's command chain. To remedy the issue, Goodman installed Lee as a temporary editorial director. Goodman must have been impressed with Lee though, because his replacement was never hired, and Lee continued in the role for more than three decades. With the comics industry swelling, Goodman hired additional artists to fill the company's expanding line of books. While the artists worked diligently at their tables, Lee was working on the scripts. But that doesn't mean he was running the show. Remember, Lee was still fresh out of high school, young and inexperienced with the inner workings of a business. That's why Goodman kept a tight grip on Lee for quite a while. But over time, Lee learned more about the industry and asserted more control. Stan continued to write scripts, enthusiastically explaining every detail to the assigned artist. His stories were simple, sure, but competently written, which is more than you can say for most other books on the market. Stan has since said that while he's not the best writer, he is the fastest, preferring to finish a story in only one sitting. Quote, writing is a lonely thing, he said, so I try to get finished with it as soon as possible. During the next few years, Timely jumped on the comedy craze and published many humor-based books. For Stan, the books were an opportunity to try out new ideas before bringing them to the more grounded superhero titles. These early books helped Stan establish his trademark wit that's present in nearly all of his work through the 1960s and 70s. But while business was booming, there was a dark threat looming over America. World War II. After the attack on Pearl Harbor, the United States officially entered the war on December 8, 1941. A year later, on November 9, 1942, Stan was enlisted and assigned to the Army's Communication Division. While in the military, Lee used his experience in comics to create training manuals and encourage personal hygiene. While Lee never saw combat, he did continue to work for Timely by writing stories in his free time. Then, after almost three years of service, Stan received an honorable discharge. It was time to go home. When Stan returned to Timely, Goodman had moved the office to the 14th floor of the Empire State Building to make room for more staff. Lee regained his role as editor and saw many successful years of publishing. But another great shift was about to happen. Late in 1947, Stan attended a cocktail party. There, he met a hat model by the name of Joan Bucock. Lee was instantly taken, and she was quite fond of him as well. Unfortunately, there was a catch. Joan was already married. She had married her husband after knowing him for just a day, but now, after a year of marriage, found him boring. The couple began to meet, and after a few weeks, the two agreed to get married. They flew to Reno, where the divorce laws were much looser, and stayed for six weeks. There, once the time had passed, they finalized the divorce and were married on the same day. The two remained married until 2017, when Joan passed away. The marriage of Stan and Joan proved to be beneficial for them both. Joan quit her career to take care of the house, while Stan continued at Timely. Before long, they had a child, Joan Celia Lee, named after Stan's mother. She would later be known as JC. The couple moved into Hewlett Harbor on Long Island to join the rest of the social elite. Though some of the neighbors viewed Lee as a writer of children's books, Lee settled in. He struck a deal with Goodman to work from home a few days a week, and enjoyed the leisure that arrangement brought. When he could, he'd write his scripts outside so he could bask in the sun. For all intents and purposes, Lee had made it. Unfortunately, happiness can only last so long. In 1953, the Lee family welcomed another addition, Jan Lee. However, tragedy struck when the newborn baby girl died just three days after her birth. The loss hit the family hard. Desperate for more children, 
they turned to adoption, but the process was more than they could handle. Even through these trials, the couple stayed strong, but more troubles were on the horizon. Throughout the 30s, 40s, and 50s, concerns over the contents of comic books began to rise. Vocal groups including authors, educators, parent groups, religious groups, and more started to campaign for more appropriate content. By this point, most comics published were firmly set in one of three categories – war and crime, science fiction, or horror. Many publishers included art that was described as lurid and sexually charged. These were the types of issues the vocals were trying to resolve. This was a troubling time for Lee. A man in his 30s, he believed that if the comics industry disappeared, he would be of no use to other companies. His experience was limited to comics publishing, and wouldn't transfer well to other fields. And now that he had a wife and daughter, there was more at stake than just his pride. Apart from Lee, the entire comics industry suffered during the attack in the 50s. The most vocal of accusers, Dr. Frederick Wortham, viciously criticized the entire practice of making comics. Being a notable psychiatrist, many believe what Wortham had to say. His most incriminating work was a book he published in April of 1954 titled Seduction of the Innocent. In it, he cited a gross misuse of violence, drugs, and other inappropriate behavior in popular comics. It argued that constant exposure to these types of materials directly led to delinquent children. That same month, a U.S. Senate subcommittee convened to determine if there was, in fact, a link between comics and juvenile delinquency. The hearing lasted from April 21st to June 4th, and included many appearances by notable artists, publishers, and critics. Their findings were released nine months later on March 5th, 1955. No links between the comics industry and delinquency were found, but the report still urged the comics industry to self-regulate. Earlier attempts to do so had failed, but with the widespread concern of the industry now in full effect, the Comics Magazine Association of America was formed in September of 1954. The group quickly adopted a set of rules that determined what could and could not appear in a comic book. These rules were called the Comics Code Authority, and it dominated the industry for decades. In the immediate aftermath of the Authority's formation, almost two-thirds of comics ceased publication. Many core concepts were simply too outrageous for the Code's tastes. Books such as The Ghost Rider were cancelled. New rules meant that comics had to be approved during each step of the production process. These requirements significantly lengthened the time it took to make an issue, and crippled the creativity of the publishers. The entire ordeal had a lasting effect on Lee. He was never confident in his career, but the intense scrutiny made him feel even less secure. Lee felt he had to justify the existence of his work, and, at the same time, compromise its integrity. And Lee wasn't alone. The rest of the comics community felt the ripple of Wortham's attack. From this point on, the comics industry would never be the same. While the war against comics raged in the mid-50s, Stan's work at Timely didn't stop. Since Lee started working at the company, their business model had always been the same copy the hottest trends. Different genres would come and go while the company continued to make a steady profit. But after World War II, the market had spoken. Superheroes were out. The once popular Namor the Submariner was cancelled in 1949, followed by Captain America in 1950, and the worst was far from over. Timely, now called Atlas Comics, moved to distribute its own books a few years earlier, but, because of the scare caused by the Senate hearings, that division was closed. Seeking a replacement, a deal was struck in November of 1956 with the largest comics distributor, American News. Just a few months later, in early 1957, American News left the market. Now, with no way to put books on the newsstands, Atlas scrambled to sign a deal. With no clear answer in sight, Atlas signed a deal with competitor DC Comics to distribute their books. The problem? The deal hinged on a restriction that required Atlas to publish no more than 8 books a month. Let's just take a moment to understand this deal. Atlas, the future Marvel Comics, has DC distributing their books. And instead of the 40 plus titles they were used to putting out each month, they were now shackled to only 8. The deal had terrible repercussions. 
Books were cancelled and employees fired. Lee, who had to deliver the devastating news to each staff member, was sick. The team he had worked so hard to cultivate was being dismantled, and he had no control over it. Lee was moved from the 14th floor of the Empire State Building, where he had previously worked with a sizable staff, to a small two-office space at the company's headquarters. Instead of working with staffed artists, Lee now had to burn through any inventory he had before hiring more workers. Even then, the artists were not allowed to be staffed. Instead, they worked freelance. But it was in this period of chaos that a group of legendary artists were assembled. Having left the company years before, Jack Kirby returned as a freelance artist. Along with him, newcomer Steve Ditko arrived on the scene. Kirby was already known for his great work in comics. He was coveted and well-respected, though experiencing a tough patch. Ditko, on the other hand, was fairly green, but his work spoke for itself. Back in the publishing house, trend gave way to trend. Superheroes turned into funnies, funnies into sci-fi, and sci-fi into both western and monster books. The continuous wave of rotating genres and shifting business practices left Stan exhausted. By 1961, he was looking for a way out. The fun he had when he started had since gone, and become another mundane career. So, Stan started publishing his own work. And that's when the strangest thing happened. Remember Martin Goodman? He's the publisher of Atlas's parent company. He came to Stan with a request. DC had never stopped publishing their superhero books. On the contrary, they had actually been creating new ones. So much so, that they were able to launch a new book featuring an entire group of super people called the Justice League of America. The strong sales caught Goodman's eye. He wanted Stan to create some new superheroes. At first, Stan wasn't convinced. Superhero books had never been his best, and he was still fed up with the way Goodman was directing him. He was ready to quit. Then, one night, he had a conversation with his wife. He told her of his intent to quit, and she gave him perhaps the best advice of his entire career. Quote, Just do the one the way you want, she said. If it doesn't work, the worst thing that's going to happen is they'll fire you, and you want to quit anyway, end quote. And with that, Stan began to work. Bringing together all the genres he'd worked on, Romance, Western, Sci-Fi, Monster, and more, Stan started to weave a tapestry of new and inventive characters. But he didn't work alone. He worked closely with Steve Ditko and Jack Kirby to flesh out the ideas he had in his head. But it wasn't a sure thing. This time, instead of following a large market trend, Lee was charting his own path. There weren't many other successful books to draw from. On top of that, the team was still restricted to a measly 8 issues per month. Stan had to be clever. But being clever required time, and Stan was running short. Due to the staff cuts a few years earlier, Stan was incredibly busy. He didn't have all day to sit around writing complicated scripts. That's why he implemented a new working strategy. Instead of writing complete scripts detailing panels, actions, and dialogue, he would hand his artist something more akin to a synopsis, leaving the artist to fill in the blanks. Between a few back-and-forth meetings, the storyline was understood, and work could begin. Once the pencils were done, the artist would explain any changes he'd made to the story, and allow Stan to add the dialogue. This method of working, while loose, strengthened both Lee and the artist's work. To Lee, it was a way to keep his busy writing schedule intact. To the artist, it was a world of endless possibilities. This method of creating comics would come to be known as the Marvel Method, and it is what led to the rise of Marvel Comics. The first blockbuster to hit shelves was Fantastic Four. Following from Jones' advice, Stan crafted the heroes in a way that hadn't been done before. Instead of towering gods or immovable super beings, these characters had flaws. They fought and argued like real people. It was new and refreshing, and it couldn't have happened without Jack Kirby. If you compare notes, it's clear to see Kirby's influence on the title. 
In the original synopsis, the team was to be headed to Mars. In the final version, they only traveled to space. Even more critical, key elements were changed regarding the team's powers. Lee originally envisioned the Invisible Girl being unable to become visible, and Mr. Fantastic feeling pain each time he stretched. Kirby even created an entire opening sequence that was only hinted at in the original script. Much has been made about exactly who created each character, but the truth is that the amazing team of Lee, Kirby, and Ditko worked together to make the early 60s the golden age of Marvel Comics. Without a single one of them, many characters would not have the popularity they do today, and many others might not exist at all. By 1962, the success of the Fantastic Four was obvious, and Lee began working to add more superhero titles to the line. The dynamic pairing of Lee, Kirby, and Ditko quickly churned out new takes on old ideas. The Incredible Hulk, a play on Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Thor, an updated version of the classic Norse god. Ant-Man, a twist on a former horror story. Spider-Man, a teenage superhero that wasn't a sidekick. And the list goes on and on. Iron Man, Doctor Strange, the X-Men, the Avengers, Daredevil. Even the heroes of the early 40s made a return. Namor the Submariner was featured in the fourth issue of the Fantastic Four, and Captain America reappeared in the Avengers number four. In a span of roughly three years, through an unrivaled outpouring of creative genius, the Golden Trio created what is the basis of the entire Marvel Universe. And speaking of Marvel, Atlas Comics, which had gone unnamed for a few years, was officially renamed to Marvel Comics in 1963. The Age of Marvel had begun. With a line of comics that most publishers would kill for, Marvel was off to a great start. But what exactly led to the Marvel Renaissance? In short, it was Stan Lee. At length, it was a bit more complicated. While it's true that enhanced artist control propelled the Marvel books to new heights, it was Stan's leadership that allowed the line to grow. He was the one that instituted the Marvel method that allowed artists to take a more involved role. He realized their potential and gave them the room to nurture it. While the artists were enhancing Stan's work, it was still Stan who wanted their characters to be more realistic. That sensibility came from years writing more dramatic stories in romance and science fiction comics. Those types of stories required a sense of reality that was opposite the rote superhero stories of the early 40s. Their influence can also be felt through the melding of previously disparate genres. Stan's earlier superhero work was routine and uninspired, and he knew that. So he chose to focus on the elements of storytelling he did well. Through that combination, he created something that had never been done in comics before. But maybe the most important aspect of Lee's involvement was his relentless advertising and infectious public persona. Instead of treating comics as a standard exchange of goods, Lee saw it as a way to build a community. He started numerous features that spoke directly to the readers, either as a conversation or a way to market other books. The letters column allowed fan letters to be printed in the back of an issue, and Stan would reply. Another feature, Stan's Soapbox, was a way to both market other books and give insight into those working behind the scenes. Both helped give readers a greater sense of the figures creating their favorite stories, and that sense forged a connection. Lee was so invested in creating a feeling of belonging that he started the first Marvel fan community the Mary Marvel Marching Society. Fans could join for just $1 and receive an assortment of branded memorabilia. Though it didn't last long, the Mary Marvel Marching Society was a way for fans of all ages to join the mighty Marvel Empire. Outside of the books themselves, Stan never missed an opportunity to promote Marvel. The steady climb of the company brought the attention of news publications who would come to interview Stan. His accommodating nature gave him a name for being the go-to man. Before long, even universities were asking Stan to speak. 
The first was for the meager Bard College, but by the end of his career, his resume would include the likes of Yale, Harvard, Notre Dame, Duke, and the University of Washington. Everywhere Stan went, and in everything he did, he promoted both himself and his company. The infectious attitude started catching on and blossomed into a substantial fanbase. The shameless promoter, by sheer force of will and personality, brought millions into the hands of Marvel. The rest of the 60s was a whirlwind for Stan and Marvel. By 1970, two-thirds of the Golden Trio had left the company. Goodman sold Marvel to Cadence Industries, and more characters were created every day. Even though the transition to success caused some inner turmoil, Stan continued on. His goal? Further his own celebrity. On January 5th, 1972, Stan Lee hosted a marvelous evening with Stan Lee at Carnegie Hall. The night was an effort to push Stan as the public face of Marvel, while at the same time, bring the company a wider audience. Publicity was big. An ad was placed in the New York Times, the event was talked up in Marvel's own bullpen bulletins, and posters adorned the venue. It was Stan's chance to finally legitimize himself in the eyes of the general public. And it was a disaster. The problem lies in the concept itself. Stan was a storyteller. He didn't have any showy talents. And though he can captivate an audience for a time, a complete lack of direction or show director meant that Stan was all on his own. What could he possibly talk about for two hours? There were some other elements to the show, including poorly made costumes and strange inclusions like Eddie Carmel, the tallest man in the world. The show felt haphazardly thrown together and poorly planned. Eventually, attendees began to tear apart their comics and throw them at the performers. The whole thing was a mess. The event was covered by a few media outlets, and those that did spoke poorly of it. Stan, for the most part, came out unscathed, but you'd have to imagine he was disappointed. But that disappointment didn't last long, as Stan became the publisher of Marvel Comics just two months later, in March of 1972. The promotion furthered a rift between Stan and his former boss, Martin Goodman. Remember, Goodman was Lee's cousin, and the one who originally gave him the job at Timely. Goodman had been pushing for his own son to receive the promotion. Apparently, the bosses at Cadence didn't agree. And since Goodman was no longer in charge due to the sale of his company, he couldn't do a thing about it. Over the next year, Goodman and his son would leave the company they had built since 1932. This would be the last time Stan was on speaking terms with his cousin. Now, with Stanley as publisher, only the top brass at Cadence held sway over him. For all intents and purposes, he was free to do as he wished. And he did. Marvel was no longer under the restrictive publishing limits put in place by their deal with DC a few years earlier. No, they could publish as many books as they wanted. And Stan took advantage. In an attempt to curtail slipping sales, Stan decided he would try to flood the market and squeeze out any competitors. The first batch of new books was horror-themed and included the likes of Man-Thing and Ghost Rider. Next came a series of attempts to broaden the company's audience. Lee had often incorporated females and minorities into his books before, but now he tried to give them leading roles. Black Panther and Luke Cage, both characters of African heritage, received their own titles. Similar attempts were made with The Cat, Night Nurse, and Shaun of the She-Devil without much success. Even Kung Fu got a spotlight with Master of Kung Fu and Iron Fist. The attempt was so far-reaching that Stan even tried to replicate the success of underground comics. Comics that were written and published to be counterculture, shocking, and political. One of their core principles was being unrestricted by corporate guidelines. And since Marvel was a corporation with limits on what it would publish, the experiment was short-lived. Unfortunately, Marvel was now part of a larger company whose primary outlook was the bottom line. They cared little for the creative direction of a book. On one occasion, the corporate leaders mandated that Marvel must add four new titles immediately. By the end of the day, serious work had already begun. While that might sound good, the result of such spontaneous orders was chaos. Books shipped late, 
Blank pages were replaced with reprints, and editors fought for control. The entire staff was demoralized. There were even rumors that Cadence would sell Marvel, or close it altogether. Things got even worse when other companies started poaching talent. Marvel's editor-in-chief position saw no less than five different holders in only four years. It was a tough time, and Stan didn't do much to help. His expertise lied in creative direction, not business sense. He had never been one to implement strict structures. Instead, he relied on the trust he built with his employees. That worked well in the early days when he oversaw every title, but with multiple editors, artists, and writers, a more suitable structure was needed. Not only that, but he wasn't very good at being social. Lee turned 50 in 1972 while most of his employees were in their 20s and 30s. On occasion, he would try to connect on a more personal level, but it never quite stuck. He was always kind and gracious, but he lacked the ability to easily forge lasting connections. If I had to guess, I'd say his many fallings out with close collaborators caused his social weakness. Amazingly, through the chaotic work, ill-suited structure, and social awkwardness, Stan's employees saw him with a sense of awe. Many had grown up reading his earlier work and actively tried to emulate it. The mantra, do what Stan would do, was common, if subconscious. And Marvel would need that spirit if it was to survive. When Stan became publisher in 1972, he gave up his day-to-day -day managing duties. Instead, Stan was the creative head of the team, helping when asked. But mostly, he spent his time vigorously promoting Marvel. It was a role that fit him. His vivacious personality and constant enthusiasm made him a perfect interviewee and presenter. And since he was with Marvel since the beginning, he could answer any questions thrown at him. The new role brought a new persona too, as Stan traded his usual suits for a more relaxed look. Open neck shirts, casual slacks, Gucci shoes, a silver bracelet, and those also familiar tinted glasses. As the Marvel brand continued to grow, more and more requests were coming in for interviews, and Marvel always sent Stan. On one occasion, the University of Illinois asked about this policy. Stan's secretary responded saying, quote, As the innovator of what has now become known as the Marvel style, Stanley is felt to be the one person who can best represent Marvel to the public. End quote. And so, between constant interviews and hectic speaking gigs, Stan gave hundreds of talks throughout the 1970s. And that's not all he did. Throughout the 70s, Stan made more attempts to launch projects outside of regular comic fare. He wrote three regular books about the history of Marvel. These books, collectively called the Origins books, told a version of how Stan, Kirby, and Ditko created all those famous characters. At one point, he and artist John Romita pitched a sensual comic strip to Playboy. And while the strip was never published, it shows how willing Stan was to branch out. Later, he made many attempts at the more illustrious newspaper strip. One based on the Incredible Hulk TV show ran from 1978 to 1982, but by far the most successful was the Amazing Spider-Man strip that debuted in 1977. Originally drawn by John Romita, the strip is still running to this day. Stan's brother, Larry Lieber, is the current artist. Though Stan was fixated on diversifying his portfolio, he found time to make one last comic with Jack Kirby. After Kirby left Marvel in 1970, he went to work for DC. There, he met with constant meddling by editors. Once his contract was up, he left DC to return to Marvel. At some point, he and Stan reconciled their differences and agreed to collaborate on a Silver Surfer graphic novel. The novel, which serves as an alternate telling of the Surfer's original appearance in the duo's earlier work, The Fantastic Four, was a celebration of the classic 1960s flair that Kirby brought to Marvel. A year after the book was finished, Kirby left Marvel to work full-time in animation. That was the last comic the pair ever worked on together. LA had always been a dream for Stan. 
Even during his successful years writing comics, he dreamed of writing movies and TV shows. Beginning in the early 1970s, he started managing Marvel's Hollywood dealings from his office in New York. The arrangement was difficult, and aside from The Incredible Hulk and a few animated TV shows, nothing had come to fruition. The comics industry was in a downturn by the late 70s, and most of Marvel's profits came from licensing deals. So, they decided to put more emphasis on their multimedia projects. The decision allowed Stan and his wife to move to Los Angeles, California in 1980, as the creative head of Marvel Productions in Hollywood. Lee was happy with the arrangement, and was close to signing a deal that granted him profit sharing for all Marvel-related TV and movie projects. By now, his speaking duties had slowed down which allowed him more time to negotiate both Marvel and non-Marvel deals. And negotiate he did. A lot. But somehow, that's as far as the non-Marvel projects would go. When the meetings with the producers came, everyone was enthusiastic about Stan's ideas, but no work was ever done. Perhaps unbeknownst to Stan, most of his treatments were clear rip-offs of other famous films. And even if he did know, his ideas were so underdeveloped and bare-bones that producers didn't want any part of them. Stan was frustrated, but understood the situation. Though moderately famous, he was still a near 60-year-old man, pitching ideas to a youth-dominated industry. On the Marvel side of things, prospects were looking much better. 1978 saw the release of Superman the Movie, a $55 million movie that made $300 million worldwide. The film legitimized the idea of movies based on comics, especially superhero ones. Suddenly, the floodgates were open. By 1982, projects for a whole host of characters were in development. Broadway shows for Thor and Captain America, TV shows for Daredevil and the Black Widow, movies for Ghost Rider, Dazzler, Howard the Duck, and more. People like Paul McCartney and Lee Kramer were involved. Things were looking good. In just five to six years, Stan wrote dozens of outlines. Many were updated to reflect the modern era, but most never saw the light of day. In the end, only four films came out of his work. Howard the Duck, Captain America, The Punisher, and The Fantastic Four. Captain America and The Punisher were low-budget failures, while The Fantastic Four was never released. The most promising film, Howard the Duck, bombed at the box office. Lee would later blame the Marvel executives for letting these movies be made, but the real story is a bit more complicated. Suffice to say, only the low-budget production studios were willing to make deals. Stan's time pitching ideas for Marvel's multimedia projects would ultimately be a failure but the move to LA would become a permanent staple in his life. There, he'd be able to collaborate with more people than ever before. The clout he had gathered gave him many opportunities most can only dream of. He met President Reagan. He became the Vice President of Creative Affairs for Marvel's Animation Division. He even got to officiate the televised wedding of Spider-Man and Mary Jane Watson at Shea Stadium in New York. To the public, Stan was only becoming more famous. But behind the scenes, trouble was brewing. For much of Stan's career, he had been a champion for Marvel. Whether it be a university presentation or a late night interview, he was there to raise the Marvel banner. He did it so well that it began to cause him trouble. On many occasions, Stan was presented as the sole creator of the Marvel Pantheon, and to his credit, Stan would often denounce the claims and point out that he worked with various artists to create each character. But these corrections didn't always come, and in the eyes of the public, Stan was the lone mastermind. Some of the industry felt otherwise and began to publicly diminish his involvement. Artist Bernard Krigstein accused Stan of, quote, suppressing the artistic effort, encouraging miserable taste, and treating artists and writers like cattle. Notable Marvel artists like John Buscema and John Romita levied claims of harsh workloads and intense criticisms under the Marvel method. Resentment also grew over the extra money Stan was making as Marvel's sole promoter. Totaling tens of thousands of dollars a year, the extra income was far more than any standard artist was earning. Cracks began to show in the intricate mosaic of Stan Lee. 
And none were more incriminating than his battle with former collaborator Jack Kirby. In the 80s, a growing trend of artists' rights took root. In the past, artists worked for a simple page rate, and that was it. No royalties, no part ownership in their characters, and no way to regain their original artwork. Now, outraged with the current policies, artists spoke out for better working practices. And for the most part, it worked. Companies took notice and began to enact more creator-focused policies. Jack Kirby took the opportunity to try to regain his original artwork from Marvel. These works included pieces he'd drawn for Captain America, Thor, the Fantastic Four, and more. All books that had become insanely popular and largely profitable. The pieces, if sold at market, could fetch a large sum for the creator, not to mention the sentimental value they held. So getting a hold of them was a big deal. 1978 saw a new US law governing work-for-hire agreements. Based on the law, older agreements that had never been formalized posed a risk for Marvel. Creators could pursue legal action to regain their character rights, and since most of their early work was done under informal agreements, Marvel stood to lose everything. That's why, one year later in 1979, Marvel sent out contracts defining specific freelance terms. Kirby didn't sign it, but continued to push for his art into the 80s. In 1984, Marvel tried to return original art to their creators, providing they signed a one-page release form. Signing the form legally declared the artist worked under a work-for-hire agreement and thus forfeited all copyrights to characters they had previously created. It was a way for Marvel to ensure they had complete legal ownership over their characters. Kirby, for his part, said that he would have been happy to sign the form if only he had received one. Instead, he was given a much different four-page document that asked him to relinquish more rights than other artists. He would not be allowed to sell, display, give away, or make any money from the art. Marvel could reclaim the art at any time, for any reason, and even modify it. Essentially, it required him to store the art away, never to be seen again. Kirby attempted to negotiate with Marvel to reach some understanding, even offering to lend his assistant. But the disagreements were too severe, and he ultimately sent a letter containing a copyright challenge in 1985. Unfortunately for Stan, the mistreatment of Kirby was published in a magazine called The Comics Journal later that year. The next year, in February 1986, the same magazine published an entire issue on the dispute. Criticism was launched at Stan for not publicly supporting his longtime collaborator. Kirby himself even disputed Stan's claims of creating Marvel heroes by saying, quote, Stan Lee and I never collaborated on anything, end quote. Kirby claimed exclusive writing credit and accused Lee of incorrectly listing his own credits. While Stan refuted all claims, his public image was already tarnished. Kirby had become something of an icon for the creators in the comics industry. The notoriety gave him a level of authority, and people believed what he said about Stan. For the record, documents would eventually be discovered that proved both Kirby and Stan worked to create their characters. Not one could be given sole credit. Further still, Marvel found two documents in which Kirby had previously given up his rights to the characters. The battle was eventually settled out of court, but the damage was done. Kirby had placed doubt on Lee's place in the industry. Jack Kirby died on February 6, 1994. After obtaining permission, Stan attended the funeral, sitting in the back as not to cause a scene. Later, Stan worked with Marvel to secure Kirby's wife a pension. She died just a year after it was paid out. The distrust that Kirby had fostered for Stan had a lasting effect. For much of the late 80s and early 90s, skeptics were plentiful. Stan was often the focus of intense scrutiny. On more than one occasion, he was the unfortunate subject of unflattering satire. But not all sided with Kirby. For one, Steve Ditko briefly commented on the dispute. He argued that both Kirby and Stan created the characters and stories together. Ditko's speech was level-headed and well-written. He had built a small following after his Marvel years, and soon his testimony began to breathe new life into Stan's image. Industry aficionados saw what Stan had brought to the table. 
The difference in quality between Kirby's Marvel and DC work could speak for itself. Though slow and tedious, Stan's reputation was starting to recover. By 1996, Stan's involvement with Marvel was largely as a public figure. He kept writing the Spider-Man newspaper strip, but most of the Hollywood dealings were handled by other employees. He had enjoyed minor success by appearing in a few films, most notably Kevin Smith's Mallrats in 95. And though Stan was enjoying a successful career, Marvel was in a bad place. Due to various circumstances, including poor business decisions, industry collapse, and overinvesting, Marvel declared Chapter 11 bankruptcy in December of 1996. The declaration voided all current contracts, and so, as the company began to rebuild itself, Stan got a new offer. The deal, which covered his lifetime, was incredible. His salary jumped to $800,000 a year until 2002, when it would increase to $1 million a year. On his death, his wife Joan would receive $500,000 a year for the rest of her life. He could continue to write the Spider-Man newspaper strip for an additional $125,000 a year, and somehow, he would receive 10% of the company's profits on all film and TV projects as well as an executive producer credit. Stan only had to continue being the public face of Marvel, by attending conventions, giving speeches, and being available for interviews. That, and give Marvel absolute control over all he had created. For Stan, the deal was simple. Marvel had already been operating as the sole owner of his creations, so he signed the contract. One important clause of the New Deal was that Stan's previous exclusivity to Marvel was gone. That meant he could start his own companies in direct competition with Marvel. And he did. A friend, Peter Paul, suggested that the two start an internet company based on Stan's name. They could create webcomics and animations that feature all new Stan Lee creations. The idea seemed sound, and in January 1999, Stan Lee Media opened. Initially, the company was booming. By the summer, their measly staff of three had grown to 40. Stan was the creative side, and Paul managed the business. The company went public in August of the same year, and stocks rose to $9. People were interested, and so were other businesses. Stanley Media made deals with IBM, Macromedia, Acme City, and more. Plans were put in place to create a theme park ride based on one of their properties. They were even going to make comics and webisodes based on the Backstreet Boys. Their stocks swelled to $31, making Stan worth $100 million. To keep up with demand, more staffers were hired. At one point, 150 employees took up the entire top floor and some of the bottom floor of their building. Parties were thrown with celebrities like George Hamilton and Lou Ferrigno. President Clinton sent a letter of congratulations. Stan traveled to Asia to hammer out global licensing deals. Business was good. At least, on the surface. Behind the scenes, things were less savory. Due to the nature of their business, their funding depended largely on licensing deals. But they burned through money constantly, and were surviving month to month. In 2000, the company posted a loss of $5.4 on a revenue of 296000 it all came to a head when suddenly, in December of 2000, the stock dropped to 13 cents and the company lost its funding. Stan was crushed. The company he had come to enjoy so immensely had collapsed out of nowhere. Surely something had gone wrong, but what? The answer was far darker than he could have imagined. In January of 2001, the company announced that the Securities and Exchange Commission was investigating its stock transactions. After intense investigations, it was found that Stan's business partner and close friend, Peter Paul, had been the cause. Working with several others, Paul falsely inflated stocks. Their complex scheme eventually led to the company's plummeting stock price, which led to their closing. While on trial, he was found to have caused investors a loss of $25 million. He was later found guilty. For Stan, the whole thing was a devastating blow. Paul had been a close friend, 
On one occasion, Stan said that, quote, he's the greatest partner a guy could have, end quote. Stan would pop back, but he learned a heartbreaking lesson. I'll never be so stupidly trusting again, he said. Though Stan's first major venture ended in betrayal, his future was still bright. Together with two others, Lee formed his new company, POW Entertainment, in November of 2001. This time, there wasn't any secret enemy, and the business went on to be successful. It spawned a variety of media, including novels, manga, anime, games, films, TV shows, and, of course, comic books. Many of their properties boasted Stan's name in the title, such as Stanley Superhero Christmas and Stanley Superhumans. Stan had finally found success outside of Marvel. On the other hand, he was having some problems with his former employer. In 2002, Stan sued Marvel claiming they hadn't paid him his share of profits from their hit X-Men movie. The world was shocked. Stan, one of the forefathers of Marvel, was suing the company. Stan publicly stated that he felt bad about suing the business. To him, it was probably like suing a family member. The two eventually settled. The terms, while not public, are suggested to be a payout of about $10 million to Stan. Throughout the rest of the 2000s, Stan saw success in his various undertakings. In 2004, he launched Stan Lee's Sunday Comics. In 2006 and 7, he co-hosted the reality show Who Wants to Be a Superhero on Sci-Fi. In 2011, he worked with 1821 Comics to create Stan Lee's Kids Universe, a multimedia project targeted towards young children. He even worked with DC to create a line of comics called Just Imagine, where he reinterpreted their characters as if he'd invented them. Nothing seemed beyond his grasp. He was involved in live-action musicals and manga published by Square Enix. He started the Stan Lee Foundation, a non-profit organization that seeks to provide access to literacy, education, and the arts throughout the United States. Guardian Media Entertainment and The Guardian Project reach out for help creating NHL superhero mascots. He was involved in everything. Some of his other projects included a line of comics for Virgin Comics, a TV adaption of the novel Hero, a foreword to Skyscraper Man, and a partnership with the Eagle Initiative to find new talent for the comic book field. And of course, there's the cameos. Compared to the work he did in the 80s and 90s, the 2000s were some of Stan's most productive years as a creator. But, as with everything, nothing lasts forever. On July 6, 2017, Stan's wife Joan passed away. She was 95. The death hit Stan hard. Even though they'd been married for nearly 70 years, they were still very much in love. His close friend was gone, but he couldn't dwell in it. Within a few months, he was back on the Comic-Con circuit, weaving tales of fancy. But something was different. Fans started to notice how frail he had become. There were rumors of deteriorating health, which were only bolstered by videos fans posted of a barely functioning man trying to sign their memorabilia. More rumors spread of abuse. They alleged that some of Stan's oldest co-workers and employees were walling him off from family and friends in order to get his wealth. They also alleged that those same employees were having Stan sign papers without consent and that they were obtaining his blood and using it to make pins and stamps. Those rumors were reinforced when Stan filed a lawsuit in April 2018 against Jerry Olivares, caretaker of Lee. Stan was also granted a restraining order against business manager Kea Morgan. The suit accused Olivares of manipulating Stan to sign over power of attorney after Joan's death, making unauthorized donations to sham charities, buying a condo with Stan's money, and stealing Stan's blood. It was a terrible way for Stan to spend his last year. Then, 
On November 12th, 2018, the passing of a Titan. Stan joined his wife Joan and second daughter Jan as he passed away. The cause of death was aspiration pneumonia. Stan's remains were cremated and given to his daughter, JC. Stan wasn't a perfect man, but he brought joy to millions of people around the world. And to each and every one of those people, he meant something different. To me, Stan represents a love of life that few achieve. He let that love overflow and shared it with others. His creations helped shape me as a person and inform my core principles. His blissful demeanor let us all believe that someone could be larger than life, greater than the place from where they came. He was a shining light in a world that can be depressingly dark. Stan really was the man. But to my friends and family, Stan meant something different. Whether you're a Democrat or Republican, whether you're wealthy or whether you're poor, you know, the impact that you could have with writing, and that's what he was, was he was a writer and he was a creator that would, you know, bring people together to do these kind of things. This was a medium that could affect so many people in so many different ways. I never connected with a superhero before Spider-Man. And that was the first hero that had teenager problems and had a secret identity along with trying to keep up the superhero life but having home issues at the same time. And so that's what really grabbed me into the superhero fandom. You could pick up a, a Marvel comic and say, oh, I can relate to you know the struggles that Iron Man is having, the struggles that... Ben Grimm is having being a monster, the struggles that Spider-Man is having, right, growing up. If you know my background, um, my mom and dad got divorced when I was pretty young, right? So I was kind of struggling, having, you know, a lot of emotion, um, a lot of hard time connecting with other people, making friends. And so I guess I, I kind of deep-ended into comics, and that's where... You know, the, the one comic that seemed like a, a, a family, a good family unit, was the Fantastic Four. So when I think of Stan Lee, that's what I think of. The greatest part about them is the human connections that they have and the close way that people can relate. You look and he has changed so many people's lives, not only through the fandom, of comic books. Whatever it may be, he's already impacted so many people's lives other than the people that are just sitting around reading comic books, but it has grown so much more than just a superhero in a comic book. Along with Jack Kirby, Steve Ditko, he basically created Marvel from the ground up. He had a consistent vision of the world he wanted to create with Marvel. Man, Stanley has done so much I, to, to shape my childhood. I still remember um, going into uh, my dad's bedroom and grabbing his comics um, that he had stored and, you know, reading these old comics, you know, issues, you know, 100, 200 um, from, you know, the Fantastic Four series and just, you know, from the Fantastic Four to the Avengers to all these other heroes that Stanley has helped not only create but has had a voice into and shape has really impacted uh, I guess my personal um, kind of growth right because I grew up reading these superheroes and and seeing what a superhero is like and and how to you know be a superhero and how to model that and live that too. Comic books allow people to strive it shows people striving towards things that are normally impossible and I think it gives people including me the motivation to try things that you didn't think you were able to do and you know it takes you away from the world sometimes whether you know you're busy with work or school or you have family stuff going on you can always just sit down and read a comic book and just kind of be taken away into a different world and it just really helps you go past things because you can find a superhero that's probably struggling with something that you're struggling with Spider-Man just happened to be that one for me.
And I loved uh, Stanley that you said that, you know, most people want to retire because they hate their jobs, but you never want to retire because you love your job. You spent your life just creating, creating experiences for, pe for people, creating superheroes, creating a, an escape for people to dive into when their world sucks and to experience something else, even if it's just for five minutes. And, you know, I think you have helped millions and millions of people uh, who can now escape by watching the movies and reading it in the books, but not only escape, but, you know, take the lessons that you ingrain in those characters and live those out as well. Superheroes in general will be mainstream, and while sure, I'm you know they'll they'll dip and increase and in, in popularity, the impact that Stanley has made will never die out, and it can only continue to go upward and reach more and more people, and showing them what a superhero is like and how to change the world. Thanks for touching so many people with the art that he created, right? So. You know, there's different types of art, right? There's, there's painting, there's music. And what he did with his art was both the writing and the, you know, working with real creative people on the drawing and creating that universe. And so I would say thank you for doing that. I think, honestly, his lasting legacy is just going to be, you know, everybody can rise up from anything and create whatever you want to. There were so many things that there was no way he could have even known that he impacted so many people's lives and, and you know, including mine. Like, whenever you introduced me to Spider-Man and stuff, I just, I would tell him that I truly connected with him and I love him to this day. And I would want to thank him for that. Thank you, Stanley, for creating all of these characters who I've learned to love and who I've grown up with. I would say thank you for just being a great role model of always having positive energy for everybody and creating characters that people can look up to and know that there's somebody out there that's like them and who can do something great and just help others have hope that they can do something great too. I mean, you read on different, you know, Reddit, uh, different blogs, how many people male and female, people that, that had, you know, good places to grow up, you know, good situations, people that were struggling um, with either things within their family or with situations that they were put into. Um, and I think that his ability to write and to kind of reach out and touch different cultures, different people, I think that was really, I'd say thanks to Stan for, for creating something that was real to everybody, right? That, that he could do something that was tangible that could affect so many people. Thank you for uh, being a creative voice, for helping shape the comic book industry, the movie industry, you know, culture, pop culture as we see it now, and, and for being a change of, of positive and good and, and using your abilities to help further all of that instead of just sitting on your wealth. I'm doing what I enjoy doing. It's like other men like to play golf, so they play golf every chance they can. So you don't say to them, how come you're playing golf today? You played last week. It was the same with me. To me, it is such fun creating characters, writing stories, even doing interviews, even though I can't hear most of what the guy says to me. But um, it's an exciting life. And when you do something that you know the fans seem to enjoy, that gives you such satisfaction, you don't want to stop. I'd like to think of myself as an entertainer. I, I feel if I can entertain people in any way, it's very gratifying because it's a funny thing. Years ago, I used to feel somewhat embarrassed that I was writing comics. I felt there are men building bridges and working in laboratories on cures for illness and, and doing real things, and I'm writing these comic books. But over the years, I've learned how much joy these comic books have brought to people. And um, I began to realize that entertainment is very important in people's lives. Most people, almost everybody, have lives that have problems and troubles and things to worry about and, 
if you can entertain somebody, take his or her mind off the things that would normally be bothering them. That's a good thing to do. So I like to think of myself as an entertainer, somebody who offers a little entertainment to people in whatever form it may be. Mostly in my case, it had been comic books. While Stan might be gone, like many legends, he is never forgotten. He joins the likes of Walt Disney, Elvis Presley, Fred Rogers, and Steve Jobs, all people who helped shape our lives. Stan will live on in the hearts of those whose lives he's touched. We love you, Stan. Rest in peace. Thank you for listening to this special tribute episode of Cuz We're Nerds. Most of the information was gathered from the book Stan Lee and the Rise and Fall of the American Comic Book. If you'd like more details about Stan's life, please take a look there. Excelsior!